thank you for joining us for another episode of God, Law, and Liberty with David Fowler, president of the Family Action Council of Tennessee. Every week, we are putting culture, politics, and law on a collision course with the truth of God's Word. And now, here's David. Welcome to this week's episode of God, Law, and Liberty, and I believe you're going to find today to be really fascinating and encouraging to you, uh, particularly in a culture that dismisses what Christians believe as myth. You may recall just a few weeks ago in Canada, they said you cannot teach about this distinction between male and female and try to help people over their gender dysphoria and all of that because it was based on myths related to creation. So we need to know how we're going to respond into a culture like that. And today, I think, will prove to be very, very helpful to you. I want to pick up where we left off last week. You'll recall that I ended with a quote from Herman Bavinck, the late um, 19th century, early 20th century theologian from the Netherlands. Uh, His multi-volume treatise, Reform Dogmatics, in volume two called God and Creation. And the specific quote that I gave was talking about the fact that the Father's very nature is generative and that from all eternity, the Son was generated or begotten of the Father, of one with the Father in his godness, yet distinct in his person. Now, that is a mystery to most people, and indeed it is a mystery, but it's not contradictory. It is not the same as saying there is one essence and yet two essences, or there's one person and yet two persons. It is saying there's a one in essence and two in person. That's not a contradiction of terms. It's a mystery. It's a profound mystery. It's the mystery of God that Paul keeps talking about in his letters that was finally revealed to man, but it's not a contradiction of concepts or terms. And so, Bavink said this, and this is how we left it last week, by generation from all eternity, the full image of God is communicated to the Son. By creation, now he's referring to things made outside of God himself, the creation ex nihilo, out of nothing, God spoke into existence the things that we see and touch and smell and feel that are all around us. He says, so so by creation, only a weak and pale image of God is communicated to the creature. Specifically, you know, we're referring here to men and women who've been made in the image of God. But we see the parallel, do we not? The Son is the image of God, the fullness of God. Ultimately, in bodily form, we saw it. And so we bear an image of God in a creaturely form. We're going to come back and talk about this some more next week because it is so wonderfully beautiful and affirming in a culture where people don't know who they are or what they're intended to be and what their purpose is. But but today, we want to keep plugging on. And he says, but still, even, even though this idea of Christ being the image of God, the the Father, and us being the image of God. He said, still the two are connected. And then he made this statement that I said was so profound, I'd never thought about it before. 
It just shattered my, my naivete and my simpleness of understanding Christ as the foundation for my salvation, but nothing else. When in fact, as we said last week, the only foundation that can be laid for anything, not just my salvation, not just matters of soteriology, but for cosmology, is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the, the Alpha and the Omega. He's the beginning and the end of all that is creaturely and gives us the point of reference by which we can understand who we are, what we're doing, why we're here, the purpose of our being here, and the things that go on around us. Uh, but I don't want to get too carried off in that. I, it's just such an exciting thought to me, one that, that was never communicated to me as I was growing up. But, but he goes on, and, and this is the statement that just blew my mind. He said, if in an absolute sense God could not communicate himself to the Son, he would be even less able, in a relative sense, to communicate himself to his creature. In other words, if God could not do the big thing of communicating himself from all eternity to his own image in a, in a distinct person, then how in the world could he do that lesser thing? Uh, think back to what the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 15, where he says, if there is no resurrection of the dead in general, well, then Christ isn't raised either. There can't be a particular resurrection if there's no resurrection at all. So if God cannot communicate himself at all, even to the Son, then how could he do this lesser thing of communicating himself to creatures? And so Bob, it closed, and I closed last week with this statement, if God were not triune, creation would not be possible. Now that is an astounding statement. And in our world today, that's considered myth and craziness. But we have to consider it in light of the only other alternatives that are available to us. And that's what I want to take a look at for a moment, so that your faith in the God of creation, the triune God, is not shaken, but bolstered. Now, there have been historically two answers to this idea of creation by God. One is pantheism, where essentially what exists is an emanation. It is a, a continuation. It, it, there, there is a continuity of being between God and the things that exist. Now, the doctrine of creation says, no, there is no continuity. God is, is ontologically in his being, in his essence, not part of the creation. He is separate from it. He transcends it. He governs it. He governs it according to his sovereign authority and according to the laws that he's established for the, all the things that he's created. And in that sense, he's present with his creation. He supplies being and existence to the creation moment by moment without which it would all collapse and, and fall away. But he's not. there's no shared being between God and the creation. The, Pantheists would say, oh no, there is. The other alternative has been some form of materialism, that there is something called matter that exists, and from this matter springs all the things that we see around us. Now, I, I want to again quote what Bobbick says on this because I think it's so good. He said, 
that neither pantheism nor materialism is the result of exact science, but of philosophy, of a worldview, of streams of belief. Now, the scientists today who are essentially materialists, and we all seem to be materialists, oh, I shouldn't say Christians shouldn't be materialists, but, but the people who reject our belief in the triune God as creator are generally materialists. Most people aren't really pantheists in any firm, resolved, thought-out sense. And he's, and he's saying that's really more of a worldview than a science. He says this, neither of them is knowledge in the strict sense of the word. Granted, materialism loves to pass itself off as an exact science, but it can be easily demonstrated that both historically and logically it is the fruit of human thought, a matter of both the human heart and the human head. See, this goes back to what the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 1. But for the fact that we're sinful human beings, we're fallen, and we're actually hostile to God, we would see the glory of God in creation. We would recognize God's divine attributes. We would recognize his authority and his power, but we refuse to do so. And so we have to come up with something else. And then he makes this wonderful statement. For the origin and end of things. In other words, where things are going. Not just the beginning, what, what got things started, but where are they going? What's the purpose for their even being here? He said, those things lie outside the boundaries of human observation and research. Now, I love this statement. Science presupposes existence and rests on the foundation of what has been created. In that regard, listen to this, my friends, listen to this. Pantheism and materialism are in the same position as theism, which acknowledges the mysterious origin of things. We would say with integrity and with honesty, yes, no one was there to see the beginning. It is mysterious. It cannot be an exact science. You base your science on the presupposition that something already exists, and you can't explain why something already exists. And no one can if they're intellectually honest. They start with what already exists to come up with their idea of evolution, for example. So Bobbitt continues, the only question, therefore, is whether pantheism and materialism, today guised under the rubric of evolution, can replace this mystery with an intelligible explanation. And then he gives us this bit of encouragement. Actually, in the history of humankind, both systems have repeatedly made their appearance and again and again have been abandoned. See, man finds himself, uh, so to speak, kicking against the pricks of reality, realizing he really cannot explain his world. And, and it may take generations for ideas to to develop and to mutate and to change before eventually the collapse, before the God who is there, who has designed his creation such that you cannot go to any part of the universe and escape the reality of the existence of God and his authority over all that he has created. So he goes on. He says this, if the world did not originate 
by an act of creation, which is what we would believe. He says there are only two options available. Either one explains matter, things, from mind, or explains mind from matter. Now, what is he actually saying here? Well, the pantheist would say that to the extent there is any sort of beginning, there is mind. There's a unity of thought, and that thought then somehow uh, produces something that's non-thought, matter, and a diversity of matter. And, and pantheists will come up with all kinds of words to try to cover over the fact that they can't explain how this mind became will. And there is a difference between the two. I can think all kinds of things, but not will anything to happen. And, and how this unity of thought or mind became a diversity of things. Now, they'll try to confuse you with the idea that well, what is in the beginning is, is what they would call pure potentiality. That's a great word, isn't it? In God is this potentiality of all of these things that then come to expression. And sort of, in a sense, almost God creates himself. Now, that's, a, that's an interesting thought. But think about what potentiality is. It's just an abstraction without content. It's really nothing. Pure potentiality without any kind of, well, what is that potential? Is it the potential of this nut to become a hickory tree? Is it the potential of this hickory tree to become a baseball bat? What, what is pure potentiality if it has no sense of what its content is? How does it become anything? It could become everything. It, it could become nothing. It means nothing. What a comfort to know that while Ours may be mysterious, and it may be hard to, to comprehend and understand fully. It can be apprehended that there's a one in essence, and there's a two in persons. There was a communication from the Father in a generative being to the Son, who then, being in the image of the Father and the image of God, uh, then creates himself, things like us, in his own image. It's not unintelligible. It's not contradictory. There isn't just a unity that all of a sudden produces diversity or a unity that can't produce anything, let alone diversity. You see how, how beautiful the story, the Word of God is in explaining why there is something there? Now, the materialist has a, a, a real problem, too. The materialist starts out with something that has to already exist, as we've talked about. And he can say that there's one thing, let's say it's energy, but how does that energy then become material, matter? Or if there's matter, then is there a lot of matter or one piece of matter? And how does that matter then get into motion? And how does that matter ever create any kind of unity? You see, they, they have a terrible problem. They can't explain from mere matter how anything ever gets into motion to become things, to become a unity. How, how did disparate, separate atoms sitting there 
matter all of a sudden get into motion, get into movement, and some of them join together to all of a sudden create a tree that would be a unity. They can't explain how that would happen. They have to say, well, that's random mutations. It's by accident. Accident is not a power of anything. It's a description. This is an accident. <laughs> but accident is not a causation of anything. Further, the materialist has the problem of saying, how from matter did we get into metaphysical things beyond matter, like truth and beauty and, and courage and, and honesty and justice? How did those things come from matter. The materialist can, can wave his wand around like, you know, the, the Wizard of Oz and blow out smoke and all this other stuff and make lots of rumblings and loud noises. But the bottom line is he doesn't have any basis for explaining how energy became matter, how matter coalesced into unities of things that, that became other than just individual particles of matter and how matter turned into something that's meaningful. Uh, I'm reminded uh, of a story. I, I can't right now recall the name of the person, but he teaches, I believe it was at Oxford, and he said that they had uh, monthly dinners with the faculty and they would move you around to sit next to different people. And, and he's actually a mathematician, uh, but a wonderful theologian. And so he was sitting next to a person who was in the uh, chemistry department. And so he introduced himself, they introduced each other, and, and the man in the chemistry department asked what, uh, what this professor did. And he said, well, I, I teach mathematics, but very interested in theology and essences and those kinds of things. And he says, oh, well, we don't have very much in common. And he said, oh, I, actually, I think we do. And uh, the chemist seemed a little surprised and said, well, in what sense? And so the Christian said to him, well, I... I believe, if I understand you correctly, that you think everything can be explained in terms of matter, to which the chemist said, yes. And he said, so, for instance, looking down at the menu tonight, uh, it says here we're going to have salad and soup and chicken and dessert. He said, explain to me this menu in terms only of ink and paper. The chemist looked at him and said, I see your point. I can't. Because you see, what, what had happened is that paper and ink was communicating something more than this is ink and paper. He had no ability to explain intelligibly why those were words and why those words had meaning and why the chicken was not beef and the dessert was not a salad. There was something more than pen and ink and paper. So you, you see, my friends, take great encouragement here. God will allow the wicked, he says, to fill up the cup of wrath, to fill up the iniquities, and then they'll have to all drink it down. But what we need to do is to know how to defend what we believe. When people say, I don't believe in those myths, say, well, oh, I don't like to believe in myths either, uh, particularly um, probably the one you believe in. And, and, or, or, or just say, well, I don't like to believe in myths either, but would, would you help me understand how you believe things came into being? 
Why is there something rather than nothing? Can, can you help me understand that from your worldview perspective? Just see what they say. See if they've thought about it. You know what I find most of the time is people will be critical of what I believe, but they cannot offer an alternative of their own that they can stand on and defend other than they just don't like mine and they won't like yours. And to be honest, they're not going to like that you point out that they don't understand their own worldview. They can't articulate it and they can't defend it, but that is okay. That is how God then works at times to draw people to himself when they come to the end of themselves and find they have no answer. And then they're ready. Their hearts are prepared when they come to the end of themselves to do as Nebuchadnezzar did when he lost his mind and thought that everything that existed was by his power and for his glory. It says, he looked to heaven and his reason returned to him. Oh, my friends, what a great God we have. What a great way of understanding our universe that provides the only explanation that is actually intelligible and reasonable, though it is mysterious. Next week, though, we're going to take a look at this idea that Jesus is the image of God and what that means for us being made in the image of God and how that works itself out in creation and in real life issues. For instance, like with marriage, life, and abortion. And I hope you'll join me next week for more of God, Law, and Liberty. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe too. God, Law, and Liberty is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information, please visit us at www.facttennessee.org. That's F-A-C-Tennessee.org. And please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Fact Tennessee.